A Massachusetts Air National Guard member from Dighton accused of leaking classified military documents is due in court today. It's Friday, April 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, many Republicans are trying to appeal to their anti-abortion base when it comes to making laws, but softening their stance when it comes to politics. We've got to show compassion on the abortion issue because, by and large, most of Americans aren't with us on this issue. Also this hour, we talk with President Biden's pick to lead the World Bank. And 10 years after the Boston Marathon bombings, we hear from three people still trying to make sense of that day. Don't ever say that could never happen to me. But that would never happen here. Yes, it can. Yes, it has. Forecast says sunny today, highs in the 80s, but cooling down this afternoon. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A 21-year-old Air National Guardsman from Massachusetts will be arraigned in Boston today. He was arrested yesterday in connection with a case of sensitive documents that were leaked online. NPR's Dave Mistich reports U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland says Jack Teixeira will be charged under the Espionage Act. The documents included in the leak posted to social media sites contain information about Russia's war in Ukraine. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Patrick Ryder said service members who obtain a security clearance sign a non-disclosure agreement and are trained on the military's guidelines for handling classified material. Ryder called the leaks a deliberate criminal act. Attorney General Merrick Garland says Teixeira will be arraigned in U.S. District Court in Boston. NPR's Dave Mistich reporting. A federal judge in Washington state has issued a ruling clarifying that a common abortion pill should remain available in states that are part of a lawsuit seeking to protect access to the drug. The ruling comes as the Biden administration is asking the U.S. Supreme Court for emergency action to preserve access to the abortion pill in a separate case. NPR's Sarah McCammon explains. After two different federal judges issued conflicting rulings about the status of the abortion pill Mifepristone, the Biden administration asked one of the judges, Thomas O. Rice of the Ninth Circuit in Washington state, to clarify his decision. Rice had ruled in favor of 18 Democratic attorneys general who are seeking to keep the drug on the market. In his latest ruling, Rice affirms that the drug should remain available in those 17 states and the District of Columbia. For the rest of the country, though, a separate ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals places additional restrictions on the drug, including a prohibition on sending pills by mail. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Now that the two black Democratic lawmakers have been reinstated to the Tennessee State House, they want to resume their efforts to limit access to firearms. From member station WPLN, Blaze Ganey reports they're expected to face resistance. Representatives Justin Jones and Justin J. Pearson want Tennessee to have red flag laws, which Republican Governor Bill Lee recently came out and mildly supported. But Jones spoke about the need to go further. It's a step forward, but there's a lot more that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. That that was a step forward. We need to ban assault weapons. We need uh, safe storage laws. We need Mm -hmm. these red flag laws. We Mm -hmm. need uh, universal background checks. All these young people, we need to listen to what they're saying. While banning assault weapons is a long shot, there is hope from the governor and Democrats that red flag laws could be done this session. However, Republicans, who have a supermajority, have yet to show support. For NPR News, I'm Blaze Ganey in Nashville. The National Rifle Association is holding its convention this weekend in Indianapolis, Indiana. One of the main speakers will be former President Donald Trump. Some 70,000 people are expected to attend. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. More now on the Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking military documents. Jack Teixeira was taken into federal custody in his hometown of Dighton yesterday. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning went to the small South Coast community. Law enforcement and reporters swarmed Maple Street after news broke about Teixeira's arrest at his family's home. Locals struggled to understand why Teixeira would allegedly leak documents. Crystal Parent says she has kids Teixeira's age. She calls the whole situation a shame. What would possess a 20-year-old to do that? He's going to jail for the rest of his life. Teixeira is expected to make his first appearance in federal court in Boston today. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Some hospitals and clinics in Massachusetts that perform abortions say they will not follow the latest federal court ruling on the drug Mifepristone. That ruling Wednesday allows the drug's use but imposes some restrictions on when and how Mifepristone can be dispensed. The providers say they're doing what is allowed by state abortion laws and federal policies on off-label drug use. Boston University health law professor Nicole Huberfeld says Massachusetts providers would be within the law. It's possible a physician could make that decision and no legal action would occur. And that's especially true in states like Massachusetts, where Access to abortion not only remains lawful, but is protected under the law. The Biden administration is appealing the latest ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. The move to create a state cabinet secretary position to focus on housing is a step closer to reality. The state Senate yesterday approved creating a secretary of housing and livable communities. Governor Healy wants to create that position to tackle issues such as affordable housing and home construction issues. The plan still needs approval from the House. The city of Worcester is hoping to avoid another shortage of lifeguards this summer by offering free weekend training courses. Last year, the city couldn't open one of its beaches because there weren't enough lifeguards. So far, it doesn't have any recruits this year. The Telegram and Gazette reports the fee for the lifeguard training courses will be waived for participants who are hired by the city. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. In sports, the Bruins ended their regular season last night with a 5-4 win over the Canadiens in Montreal. Montreal. The Bees will open the playoffs Monday against the Florida Panthers. Red Sox are back home tonight to face the L.A. Angels. In our weather forecast, sunny today, hot temperatures getting into the 80s, but the temperatures will drop dramatically by the end of the day today. Tonight, a few clouds, lows tonight around 50. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, temperatures in the upper 50s, some showers likely on Sunday with highs in the 50s, and we have a chance of showers marathon Monday, temperatures near 60 degrees. It is 72 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. The man suspected of leaking top-secret military documents on social media is due in court today in Massachusetts after a week-long search by authorities. The documents revealed U.S. assessments of the war in Ukraine as well as sensitive secrets about American allies. FBI agents swarmed the family home of Jack Teixeira, a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. And the arrest followed a week-long search for the person who exposed Pentagon secrets. So what do we know about the accused leaker? NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin has been reporting on all this and is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. So this is a fast-moving story. So if you would first just walk us through the timeline. Absolutely. So the search for Jack Teixeira has been a whirlwind. Everyone's been working backwards to try to find the original source of these documents, some of which, as you mentioned, included sensitive details about the war in Ukraine. So after the New York Times reported on a handful of these classified documents surfacing in Russian telegram channels last week, the investigative outlet Bellingcat and others, including NPR, found more images posted earlier on websites like 4chan and Discord, which is a social media platform that's popular with gamers. Once we found the documents on Discord, it really was like following a trail of breadcrumbs to the original poster. So tell us, first of all, what is the government alleging that Teixeira did? And tell us more about what you found out about him and what he's all about, the people he's connected to. Yeah, so we haven't seen a formal indictment yet. He's due to appear in court today, uh, but we did hear that the Espionage Act is what he'll be accused under. Um, I followed the trail on Discord to try to find out uh, more about his friends. I was pretty quickly banned by those guys because I I used my real name as a journalist and they made it pretty clear that they didn't want to talk to me. But I got some information about those friends who are part of a since-banned private Discord channel where the documents were first posted. One of those users was a young man in California, and another was an unidentified man who supposedly originally created the channel that they gathered on together. Based on their social media profiles, it's really clear that this group was fascinated by things like Orthodox Catholicism, guns, and racist and vile memes. The guy who supposedly founded the group was actually using a profile picture of a computer programmer named Terry Davis. He suffered from schizophrenia, and he talked about hearing the voice of God. He would go on expletive-laden rants. He was apparently a hero to some of these communities. As for the family, they locked down their social media profiles pretty quickly. But his stepfather and stepbrother appear to have worked for the same military base as Teixeira, Joint Base Cape Cod. His stepbrother had deleted his LinkedIn, but it still showed up in Google results, and I saw he identified as a cryptologic analyst for the U.S. Air Force. We also obtained Teixeira's military service records, and he's listed as a cyber transport systems journeyman, or basically what sounds like an IT tech employee. So here's the big question. We're here in Washington, D.C. We know a lot of people with security clearances. The process of getting one is rather involved. How did he have access to all these classified documents? Yeah, that process can take years, but as an IT professional, actually, you typically have access to a lot of records because you need to fix systems when they break. That was actually the case for Edward Snowden, too, who leaked a trove of NSA documents in 2014. He was a systems administrator, though these leakers don't actually seem very similar. Um, But, you know, this has caused a real problem, and the Pentagon is definitely looking at reevaluating who gets access to these kind of files. As briefly as you can, what's next here? His court appearance and then the Pentagon's got to get full damage control to try to reassure allies that the U.S. intelligence community can be trusted with their secrets. That is NPR's Jenna McLaughlin. Jenna, thank you. Thank you. 
The earthquakes that devastated Syria and Turkey in February have sped up a political shift with potentially major consequences around the region. Arab states that provided emergency aid are also re-engaging with the Syrian government they once isolated or even tried to topple. Today, a group of Arab foreign ministers are discussing just that, and NPR's Aya Vitraoui joins us to talk about it from Dubai. Good morning. Good morning, Leila. So what exactly are these countries hoping to achieve in this meeting? So there are eight foreign ministers meeting in Saudi Arabia, and they're meeting to basically talk about what they want from Syria before ending the country's isolation and bringing it back into the Arab League, a bloc that represents all 22 countries of the region. Uh, this group suspended Syria in 2011 because of its lethal response against Arab Spring protesters who had taken to the streets demanding change, and that violence quickly spiraled into a civil war. Mm-hmm. So some Arab states um, we're concerned also about Iran's support for Syria. Iran set weapons and militias to back the government there, and Iran continues to have an influence on the ground. So what we're seeing today is a meeting of the biggest and most influential nations in the Arab League, like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, and others meeting. And years ago, countries like Saudi Arabia, they were not only arming the Syrian rebel opposition, they were even allowing their own citizens to go there and fight. So now many Arab countries say, we want to rebuild ties with Syria. And there are some like Qatar that are still holding out. Um, but when the Arab League meets next month, the question on the table is, will Syria be allowed back in? Okay, so if Syria is allowed back in, what would that mean for ordinary Syrians? For Syrians, it would be a first step towards ending a deeply painful isolation that was sparked by the regime's bombing and its torture of civilians and and rebels and besieging of cities during the civil war. And with the end of an isolation could come rebuilding the country. When I was in Syria after the earthquakes, I met Hane Milham and her 23-year-old daughter, Mariam Hafe in Latakia, and their home was destroyed by the earthquakes. They were exhausted and out of hope. Hanat Melham was basically saying, we're living day by day and can't see a future. Um, Her daughter is questioning why should she keep paying for her studies when they're living on the streets and running after any kind of aid. So diplomatic outreach to Syria could help people like Hanat and her daughter return to something closer to normal again. Um, Mm -hmm. But there are other Syrians, of course, that risked everything to bring down President Bashar al-Assad's government, and they want him punished, not shaking hands and welcomed back on the world stage. I mean, I guess that's the big question is, you know, a lot of these countries try to isolate and overthrow him, as you point out, over these issues, a painful and violent repression of the opposition, this civil war. What's changed, though, in his leadership to bring him back? Why are these countries open to welcoming him, welcoming Syria back now? Well, the war has had major spillovers. I mean, we're talking about millions of refugees, Syrian refugees in Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, Turkey, and other countries. And these countries are already suffering their own economic pressures and turmoil. Um, And then you also have Syria's neighbors. They wanted uh, Syria to help fighting terrorism. And they also want Syria to end its drug smuggling into Gulf Arab states like Saudi Arabia and others. Um, But ending Syria's prior status and rebuilding the country faces a hurdle. And that's the United States has hundreds of troops in Syria backing Kurdish rebels there. And the U.S. and the EU maintain heavy sanctions on Syria that are supposed to isolate it. But as Arab states rebuild ties with Syria, it puts pressure on the U.S. to reconsider its policies. That's NPR's Aya Batrawi in Dubai. Thank you so much, Aya. Thanks, Leila. 
Some of the best marathoners in the world will be in Boston next week for one of the city's most beloved traditions. Many of them are out to set a personal best record or maybe break the course record. But how quickly can a person run 26.2 miles? Esteban Bustillos from member station GBH in Boston has this report. No one knows for certain how fast a human can run a marathon. But first-time Boston marathoner Elliot Kipchoge has an idea. He ran the fastest competitive marathon ever, a record two hours, one minute, and nine seconds in Berlin last year. For Boston, he's not sure what he'll be able to do. My plan is so it's not really to run a course record or anything else, but my plan is I want to see myself winning. For all of Kipchoge's accomplishments, there's one that stands out as the most extraordinary. In 2019, he ran a marathon in under two hours at a special event in Vienna, Austria. Elliot Kipchoge storms into the history books in Vienna. 1.59.40, the unofficial time. The first man to run a marathon in under two hours. The result was not an official record because it was in a controlled setting with special support runners and equipment to pace him. But it did give the first glimpse into humans being able to break running's next big barrier. Mark Carroll is the head coach of the Boston Athletic Association's high-performance team. He believes a sub-two-hour marathon in a race can happen soon. The day where we see you know, a two-hour marathon in a world marathon major is probably not too far away. Nathan Cardus is the medical director at the Ryan Center for Sports Medicine at Boston University. He says that elite marathoners simply have a bigger engine than others. That's measured by what's called VO2 max. Cardus explains it's an equation that measures the amount of blood pumped through the body times the amount of oxygen extracted by the tissue. Most people who, if you're an untrained, healthy male, most are going to have a VO2 max around 35, 40 or so. And these elite marathoners will have VO2 max in the 70s or even 80s. Cardus points to 1991 research that hypothesized the human limit for a marathon time was right around an hour and 58 minutes. Now, Cardus thinks that could be realistically met in the next two decades. And it would be strange for me to say that, oh no, this is the point of time where we've completely advanced to the point that (laughs) we're not going to decrease that time anymore. While a sub-two-hour marathon could happen one day in a competitive race, that may not happen in Boston. Its sloping terrain and temperamental weather make the city's race among the hardest of the six world marathon majors to conquer in less than 120 minutes. Here's Cardus. It's not going to be in Boston where it happens the first time. Still, people like Elliot Kipchoge have shown that human limits can be flexible. After he ran under two hours in 2019, he talked to reporters about his motivation. I've been putting in my heart and my mind that uh, I don't run under two hours in marathon to make history and pass a, a, a positive thought and a message to the whole world that no human is limited. And someday soon, the trail Kipchoge's blazed may open the door for others to make the once impossible journey to a sub two hour marathon possible. For NPR News, I'm Esteban Bustillos in Boston. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, we hear from President Biden's pick to lead the World Bank. And our forecast, sunshine today will get into the 80s by midday, but temperatures will drop dramatically down into the 60s by later this afternoon. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Luke Burbank expressed some skepticism about a new law in Utah that keeps minors from using social media. I don't feel like there's a strong history of keeping people off of websites. Well, the thing is, I'm Peter Sagal. You don't have to prove anything to listen to this week's news quiz with champion beatboxer Kayla Milady. Join us for Wait, Wait from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. All this week, Morning Edition has been bringing you the voices of survivors of the Boston Marathon bombings, talking about the moments of joy they've experienced in the last decade. Here's Jillian Rennie. For me and and for my family in particular, something that immediately comes to mind is building the Stepping Strong Center for Trauma Innovation at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which was something that we founded in the wake of the events of 2013. I was brought to the Brigham and, you know, was saved there my life, my legs, and really we just felt so much gratitude to the hospital and wanted to find a way that we could give back to, you know, my medical heroes, but also advance trauma care for all other future trauma patients like myself. That we established in 2014, February 2014, and has since grown to be a permanent fixture in the hospital. So it's now a permanent center and we've raised over $27 million to date. That is something that I feel so proud of. It really just brings me so much hope and so much joy to have turned you know, this tragedy and this trauma into a pillar of hope and resilience for the future. That was Jillian Rennie talking about the center she founded after the Boston Marathon bombings. We'll hear more reflections from people on the last 10 years coming up in about 30 minutes here on Morning Edition. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Michelle Martin. 
The World Bank is poised to get a new leader. In February, President Biden nominated businessman Ajay Banga to lead the bank, a sprawling international organization which oversees billions in funding, which is lent to developing countries with the goal of alleviating poverty and raising living standards. Banga, the former CEO of MasterCard and a former top executive at PepsiCo, was born and raised in India and is now a U.S. citizen. As the largest shareholder of the bank, the U.S. has selected every president since the bank's founding in 1944. And Banga is unopposed. When I spoke with him earlier this week about his vision for the institution, I started by asking him what attracted him to the job after a successful career in the private sector. The World Bank and institutions like it are among the few that can tackle long-term money, long-term thinking, aimed at fighting inequality, but also aimed at fighting the intertwined challenge of climate change. And I've thought of it that way. I never dreamt I would actually get a chance to do this job. Well, you know, as you just mentioned, the job of the World Bank is basically to alleviate poverty around the world. But increasingly, as you also noted, the thinking is that the bank has to confront climate change as well. Some people argue that that's even more important. What in your background prepares you to do that? I mean, you have to be aware that there are those who think that someone with a career specifically focused on climate change, somebody with more of a public sector background would have been the better choice. I hope I'm not hurting your feelings. Oh, you're not hurting my feelings. I've heard that over the last six weeks a few times. I understand that. My view is that I've shown over the course of my career that I can manage complex global organizations for change, for a new direction, for a new time. And I think that's exactly where the World Bank is today. It was created at a point of time when development and poverty and spreading prosperity but the best and most important uses and causes for it. I think the world's challenges are intertwined today. Therefore, the World Bank needs to evolve for that change. And I think that partnerships is a very important part that would be required for the World Bank. Partnerships with other MDBs, partnerships with government, but most interestingly, partnerships with the private sector, because the scale of these challenges require trillions, not billions. So in a recent talk at the Center for Global Development, you talked about the link between climate change and poverty. And I was particularly struck by your observation about how climate change is thought about and experienced differently in the so-called developed world versus the so-called developing world. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? The global south views the whole climate topic not only as an energy emissions issue, which they feel they did not contribute to, by the way, but also as an impact on the day-to-day life of being able to breathe clean air, have access to enough water and clean water. And then there's the existential challenge for a number of them of the impact of a catastrophe. That's the reason why I think the Global South sees climate as a much bigger and more complicated issue than just managing energy emissions. And you feel confident that in this role that you can address both because, you know, there are concerns among developing countries that this renewed interest in energy and urgency is going to crowd out their ongoing concerns about poverty and inequality and health and education and so forth. Can you assure them that you can do both? Well, I'm going to try. I honestly don't think we have a choice that somehow we can unwind the two challenges of development and climate and segregate them. If you're a farmer in Kenya 
where they haven't had rains for four years, it very quickly becomes from two crops to one crop in a year. That leads to them then getting rid of their cattle that gave them income from milk and dairy. That then leads to them laying off the laborer they hired and bringing their girl child out of school or the boy child out of school to help them on the farm. That is a complete reversal of the development agenda. Hmm. And it's intertwined with climate. Does something have to change at the World Bank to address both of these at once? And I'm asking you, you know, to describe your vision here, recognizing that most of us don't know anything about the way the World Bank is structured to begin with. Well, I I haven't yet had a chance to meet the people of the World Bank because that's the way the process works. And so making a commentary about what has to change inside the World Bank uh, without meeting the people is not something I want to do. But I can tell you that one thing that I'm very focused on that I think helps to get everybody aligned is to measure outcomes. So rather than measuring the dollars we lend or the number of projects we finance, I would like to be sure that the transparency we provide to our outcomes is how many girls went to school, how many people got skilled, how many private sector dollars were we able to bring in. I think that's going to be an important part of our journey. Let's talk about China. Speaking of dollars lent, Beijing has itself provided loans to developing countries. That's been a benefit to many countries. But that's also a source of concern to other governments who worry about what China expects in return. But China is still seen as a developing country, which is eligible for World Bank support. Is China basically competing with the World Bank's work? I don't think we should view ourselves as competitors. Any of the multilateral banks or countries, all countries have got bilateral aid systems in addition to helping with the multilateral development banking system. And I think we need all shoulders at the wheel, including the private sector, if we're going to make a difference with a sense of urgency, particularly in climate where 2030 is seven years away and 2050 with the Paris Accords is 27 years away. We don't have the time to play in silos. If young people have good quality of life, health, education, clean air, clean water, the things you and I take for granted, if they get that, and then they also get jobs when they're eligible for jobs, then young people, their optimism, their future transforms countries. Ajay Banga is the Biden administration's nominee to lead the World Bank. Mr. Banga, thank you so much for joining us. I hope this will be our first conversation and not our only. I look forward to that. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard is expected in court today in Boston to face espionage charges. NPR's Windsor Johnston says the IT specialist is believed to have leaked dozens of classified Pentagon documents online. 
Jack Teixeira is believed to be the leader of an online chat group where the classified documents were initially posted. The materials included detailed intelligence assessments of U.S. allies and adversaries, as well as sensitive information about the war in Ukraine. Teixeira's arrest came after a fast-moving government investigation. Lawmakers from both parties are demanding answers about how Teixeira was able to obtain the classified documents. North Korea says yesterday's test of an intercontinental ballistic missile involved a new missile that can be launched far more quickly. NPR's Anthony Kuhn is in Seoul. North Korea said that this is a new intercontinental ballistic missile called the Hwasong-18, which it says improves its ability to launch a quick nuclear counterattack. And they said they want to make their enemies suffer from fear and anxiety. Leader Kim Jong-un was there to watch this test launch along with his wife, his sister, and his young daughter. And any time there's a really important event like this, it's a family affair. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Local and state police say they are prepared. For the Boston Marathon on Monday, there will be a large law enforcement presence, they say, but they stress there are no known threats. State Police Lieutenant Colonel Mark Sear says there will be enhanced security, which has been in place since the marathon bombings 10 years ago. Our plan involves uniformed troopers, local police officers, National Guardsmen, and tactical units such as explosive and hazardous material detection teams. There will be security checkpoints at busy areas near the finish line. Spectators will have to have their bags checked, and those bags will have to be smaller than a backpack. Cans, glass bottles, coolers, and blankets are prohibited. Lexington is becoming the first Massachusetts community to approve zoning rules that comply with a new state law. The rule requires communities served by the MBTA to allow multifamily housing developments near T-stations. Lexington voters approved as many as 1,200 new housing units at town meeting this week. Housing officials will now determine if that plan satisfies state guidelines. The school superintendent in Lowell is stepping down. Joel Bird has worked in the city since 2019. He announced yesterday he's leaving at the end of this school year to take over a charter school network in Philadelphia. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. In sports, Bruins beat the Canadiens 5-4. In Montreal last night, the Bees will play the Florida Panthers in the first round of the playoffs. That series begins Monday. Red Sox will try to snap their four-game losing streak tonight when they host the L.A. Angels. In our weather forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the 80s by midday, but after that, they'll drop to about 60 degrees by the end of the day today. A few clouds tonight, lows near 50. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, temperatures in the upper 50s, and Sunday, a chance of showers with highs in the 50s. It is 72 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fidelity Investments, a dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. Good morning. Abortion is once again center stage in American politics. Late last night, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill that bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. In D.C., we're waiting to see whether the Supreme Court will take up a review of a circuit court ruling that the abortion pill mifeprestone cannot be administered after the seventh week of pregnancy. Both leave Republicans facing a challenge about how to message and how to legislate on abortion rights. To help us break all this down, we have NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales and NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro with us. Thanks for being here again. Hey there. Thanks for having us. So, Claudia, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Republicans in Congress have the majority, but definitely not a super comfortable majority. Some would argue that's because of the party's stance on abortion. So how are they messaging on the issue now? We're seeing a bit of a mixed bag Mm. when we hear from members talking about this issue. Some are focused on their base who want to see stiffer limits on abortion access, while other more moderate members are speaking out. We're really seeing this divide play out in the House. And this includes South Carolina's Nancy Mace, one of those more moderate members who on CNN said recently that this is a losing argument with voters. We are getting it wrong on this issue. We've got to show some compassion to women, especially women who've been raped. We've got to show compassion on the abortion issue because by and large, the most, most of Americans aren't with us on this issue. At the same time, many Republicans are not on the same page with Mace. So what we're seeing in many cases is that they're not all on the same page when it comes to Republicans altogether, when it comes to how far they should go in terms of legislating to limit access to abortions. Interesting. Domenico, is Mace right? I mean, Republicans have long campaigned on limiting abortion access. Now that it's a reality, where is public opinion on the issue? Yeah, I mean, abortion politics and how people feel about it is very nuanced. But, you know, politics doesn't exactly lend itself to nuance very well. But, you know, most people are in favor of some restrictions on abortion. It just depends on how far uh, people want to go. And that's kind of part of the problem for Republicans is a lot of these state laws that they're pushing are outside of what the mainstream or the majority of people are in favor of. You know, a public religion research institute survey released earlier this year found that almost two thirds of people believe that abortion should be legal in most or all circumstances. That's up 10 points since 2010. And the most signifying event here wasn't really the Dobbs ruling last year. It was the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Mm. the Supreme Court justice in 2020. Now, Claudia, in NPR's reporting from the campaign trail last year after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, it seemed like Republican congressional candidates were reluctant to talk about their position on abortion. Do you think that's what we'll see in 2024? Yeah, so far when we're seeing hints of how they'll approach their campaigns, I think we're seeing a repeat of that now. We will see, uh, as we have in the past, that Republicans will talk about limiting access to abortion, but more and more in more general terms, publicly supporting the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But as for the next steps for legislating, that's less clear in terms of where they stand. We're seeing a lot of that being taken up by the states, by the court. We did see House Republicans, for example, at the start of this congressional session pass two anti-abortion bills, but they were mostly limited in scope and didn't go as far as taking up legislation would have more broader impact. And so it's largely performative because 
Republicans know they don't have a chance in terms of moving these bills out of the House with a Democratic-controlled Senate, with mm. a Democratic president. Uh, at the same time, we know Democrats are finding this to be an energizing issue for their voters, The vast, with the vast majority of the country supporting some kind of access to abortions. We did see that play out in the midterms with Republicans not performing as well as they had hoped. And so Republicans are in a difficult position here. And, you know, circling back to Mace's comments that we played earlier, um, she also talked about limiting access to the abortion drug and essentially said that we should ignore this federal judge's ruling on that. But as Domenico mentioned, Republicans who do represent voters uh, who support these new limits will struggle, you know, in terms of finding agreement um, when it, when we look at the polling and what they're up against. Now, that's Congress. Domenico, this is, of course, going to be an issue mm-hmm. in the presidential election, as it always is. And we mentioned earlier that DeSantis is making moves on abortion access in Florida, and he's a potential candidate. So what does that say about his possible campaign? Yeah, I mean, they're basically, you know, when you look at all the Republicans, they're jockeying for the activist base. I mean, mm-hmm. DeSantis himself had been criticized by activists on the right because he he was supportive and signed a 15-week ban, and they thought that didn't go far enough. Mm-hmm. When, you know, there's a lot more public opinion on Republican side uh, when it comes to 15-week bans, uh, although there's a pretty uh, sharp split. But when it comes to six-week ban, far less so. Mm. So that's DeSantis and what he's been doing. But what are other candidates or potential candidates saying? Yeah, we saw South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, for example, form an exploratory committee this week. And he's known to be pretty conservative and religious. He said this week that he would actually find assign a federal 20-week ban, uh, saying that he would definitely do that. And he was trying to criticize Democrats for being extreme on the subject. But, you know, when you look at most of what Democrats want to do or Republicans, very different and not Republicans in their primary not really aiming to the middle. NPR's Domenico Montanaro and Claudia Grisales. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you much. Have you ever been to the airport and thought, I'm going to be here a while, I need to juice this phone, and then you saw one of those spanking new public charging stations and thought, great, I'll plug right in. Well, maybe not so great. They could be dangerous for your data. The FCC and local chapters of the FBI are raising concerns about a cybercrime called juice jacking. Juice jacking is basically a portable charger or a charger out there in the public that's been designed to look real. But in reality, it's also either installing malware on your phone or stealing data off of your phone. That's Jim Stickley, a cybersecurity expert and CEO of Stickley on Security. He says phones that use a USB connection to charge the battery give hackers a gateway to your personal information. Okay, so don't plug into public chargers. Got it. But what if you need to charge your phone? Stickley has three suggestions. The first one is just carry your own little portable battery charger. You've got your own, you just plug into that, and you're golden. Tip two, buy a data blocker that plugs into the cable that charges your phone. And basically what it does is it blocks all data. It only allows power through. And tip number three, avoid charging kiosks that have complementary charging cables. It's because it's much easier for criminals to provide the wires so that when they set up their technology, it goes through the way they want it to. Stickley and federal authorities also suggest using electrical wall plugs to charge your phone. And you know what? Carry a handbag, Layla. It's so easy. Yeah. Well, I have a portable charger all the time. I I have all these tips down. You know it. This is NPR News.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Planet Money team looks into the recent financial troubles at First Republic Bank. And in our next hour, we'll talk with some abortion providers about how they're navigating the uncertainty about the popular abortion drug Mifepristone. The Supreme Court is expected to weigh in on the drug. In our weather forecast, sunny today, temperatures getting into the 80s by midday, but dropping into the 60s by the end of the day today. Tonight, a few clouds, lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, it'll be mostly cloudy with temperatures in the upper 50s. And Sunday, a chance of showers, highs in the 50s. Marathon Monday, rain in the afternoon and temperatures near 60 degrees. It is 72 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. The Boston Marathon is expected to bring $100 million into the local economy as thousands of runners and their fans visit the city. And this is according to Meet Boston, the city's tourism bureau. WBUR's Zeninjor and Wameka reports. Restaurants, retail stores, and hotels are all expected to get a big boost from the marathon. For example, hotel occupancy is typically in the mid-70s percentage-wise in the spring. But at marathon time, it jumps to over 90 percent. That's according to Meet Boston CEO Martha Sheridan. The race is one day, and families will typically stay two to three to four nights, and they'll do duck tour, or they'll visit our museums, they'll go off into our neighborhoods and experience some of the unique cultures of Boston. The Boston Athletic Association will release its own economic impact numbers after the race. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zeninjor and Wameka. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. Good morning. I'm Michelle Martin. When there was a run on Silicon Valley Bank last month, some other banks also looked wobbly, particularly First Republic Bank. Its stock price plummeted and depositors withdrew their money. As Amanda Aronchik from our Planet Money podcast wonders, if it takes a bunch of customers to cause a bank run, can a bunch of customers stop one? Both Min Park and his wife worked in banking for years. And about a decade ago, Min's wife got a job at First Republic. She was like, I love this bank. I love the people. I love everything that they do for their clients. It's so such a personal touch. If it sounds like Min's outside, that's because he is. Yeah, I'm sitting in the Bay Area and uh, enjoying a California spring day. Delightful. Anyway, when Min gave up banking to become an investor, he moved all of his accounts to First Republic. And if you're wondering what a personal touch at a bank looks like, well, Min had two bankers assigned to him. He could call them up pretty much any time. And when he and his wife were expecting their first baby, he let his bankers know. I I actually give them a heads up and I'm like, 
when am I allowed to open this type of account for my, my future child? Yes, they could absolutely open a bank account for his new son. Min tried pushing the bankers a little further, but they had to say no. Like, I can't open a credit card for a one-year-old, unfortunately, but <laughs> yeah. No credit cards for babies. This is the bank's business model, providing a high degree of personal service. So when First Republic looked like it might be the next victim of a bank run, Min tweeted about how much he liked his bank. Do you mind reading the tweet? Yeah, of course. Very much rooting for First Republic. It has been transformative as a banking partner for us in launching our own independent small business journeys. He's not alone. All month, customers have been professing their loyalty on LinkedIn and Medium and Twitter. Despite all the nice tweets, Todd Baker, a senior fellow at Columbia and a former banker himself, says that it was the customers that put the bank in jeopardy in the first place by withdrawing $70 billion from the bank in a matter of days. It's a prisoner's dilemma problem. Um, It's completely irrational to start a bank run. But if somebody else starts it, it's completely irrational to participate in it. That's exactly what happened. This was right after Silicon Valley Bank folded. First Republic has a similar clientele. Both banks are based in the Bay Area. Customers began to freak out. No one who's alive, more or less, has any real experience with a true bank run. Where you go to get your money out of your account, and it is gone, gone. So customers were just trying to figure out what to do. Then they start looking closely, scrutinizing their bank. Are there enough deposits left? Is there interest rate risk? First Republic customer, Min, he was one of these concerned customers. Yes, he tweeted his support for the bank, but he also moved money out of one of his business accounts. I was very much conflicted because I didn't want to help accelerate the run because that's the kind of like snowball that really makes that prediction come true. So he decided he would leave the rest of his accounts with First Republic. He wants to see the bank succeed. But customers alone can't save the bank. Other banks and the federal government have also stepped in to make sure First Republic survives this moment. Amanda Aronchik, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour from now, we'll talk with the new general manager of the T about his plans to restore commuters' trust. It's 10 minutes before 8. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. An Air National Guard member from Dighton will appear in Boston federal court today on charges he leaked classified Pentagon documents. Officials in North Korea say they completed a test launch of the country's most powerful missile to date. And the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to weigh in on the case over the abortion drug mifepristone. We'll have more on the top stories of the day in just about nine minutes from now. Now you can stay up to date on all the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. In our forecast, sunshine today getting into the low 80s by midday, but temperatures dropping to about 60 degrees by the end of the day. Right now, 72 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Tomorrow marks 10 years since the Boston Marathon bombings. This morning, three people share their stories from that day and how they've tried to make sense of it since. We hear from finish line coordinator Tom Marr, spectator Tracy Palmer, and Dr. Timothy Peck. Here are their reflections. My name is Tom Marr. I live in Duxbury, Massachusetts, and I'm 80 years old. Well, it was a, it was a normal day. Things went the way they went. The winners came. They got their awards. You know, that's the most important part of what I do. Then they're gone, and then it's the average people. Um, and at two thirty in the afternoon, it's you know, I, I call it I call it la la time because it's just so nice being out there. You know, I just keep people moving. I can still picture in my mind the wave of the concussion of the blast. Uh, it was it was smoky, it was dirtyish looking, um, and I ran to help. And then I turned and looked on the sidewalk, and then the second bomb went off. But I wasn't um, afraid. I never thought of being afraid. I never thought that um, what I was doing wasn't the right thing to do. Should I have turned and run away? How could I ever do that? At the time, I was in charge of that area. I couldn't run away. It was my turf. My name is Tracy Palmer. I'm 59, and I live in Norwell, Massachusetts. So I was standing on Boylston Street, um, close to the barricades with my two daughters. And we were there waiting for my husband to come into view. And then there was an explosion across the street, um, maybe 50 feet from us. And I just grabbed my daughter's hands. I just like, turned and ran, and everybody was doing the same thing. My name is Timothy Peck. I am 42, and I currently live in southern Indiana outside Louisville, Kentucky. I was in the Beth Israel Deaconess Emergency Department. It was actually my first day as chief resident uh, of the emergency department and um, didn't expect that day to turn out like it did. The first patients to arrive by ambulance had injuries that I had never 
seen before. Had injuries that I didn't even understand what they were. I made a phone call to my wife and said, um, honey, a bomb just went off here. A message, because she was, didn't answer. A bomb just went off here. I'm okay. Call the girls. And then I had this urge, this desire to take a step forward to go to try to help. And then I caught myself, stop. You've got professional medical people going there. You stand right here. And I honestly I didn't know where to go. I wasn't sure if another bomb would go off, because now there had been two. Who's to say there wouldn't be a third? And then I just popped into my head that I need to find my husband. I knew he would find out pretty soon what had happened at the finish line, and he knew we would, were there waiting for him. And I couldn't stand the thought of him thinking that we weren't okay. I was in the emergency department until you know, midnight that night working. And I didn't really understand what was going on out there. And it didn't matter because we were just treating patient to patient to patient. I went home that night and I could not sleep. I just was full of adrenaline actually and confusion. There was nowhere to ground, because uh, everything was so unfamiliar. The girls slept in our room for like two months after that. And the youngest slept in my bed for like several months. They wouldn't go near the city, like any city, like anything other than like our little town. Um, it was too, it was too scary. I mean, it sounds cliche, but um, even today, if I'm getting really frustrated with them about something or some stupid thing happens, I remember that day and how I promised myself that I was going to let that stuff go because it really isn't worth it. But I think we've sort of processed through it enough that, you know, we can look at it in the way we choose to. I always remember the policeman who ran toward that explosion and toward that smoke, I think like, that amazes me to this day. It's a great feeling that people, you know, there are good people out there. I didn't have any really stress or trauma or, or anything like that on the, on the bombing day, or I didn't perceive it, obviously, but, but I had it, right? And I hadn't faced it and I was um, eventually needed to because it was eating at me. So that's when I started to explore perhaps running the Boston Marathon. I'm not a runner. <laughs> I wasn't a runner. I guess I'm a runner now. I think I learned that when you need to heal, it takes a community, it takes vulnerability, and I think those lessons I've carried forward since. This is year 27 of uh, the finish line, greeting the winners. The most important thing for me is I am not going to be driven off doing something I love doing because I'm afraid that something might happen again in my life. I don't want to give a terrorist that satisfaction. It's always great when the ups are there. 
But when the downs come, you can't cave in. You can't go sit in the corner and cry. I tell people, don't ever say, that could never happen to me. Well, that would never happen here. Yes, it can. Yes, it has. And hopefully, I hope and pray for you that it never happens to you. You don't know. The Boston Marathon, to me, is the greatest marathon in the world. And how lucky am I to be at the finish line of it every year. I'm a lucky man. And I have the greatest, greatest appreciation for that. That was Tom Marr, Tracy Palmer, and Tim Peck reflecting on the Boston Marathon bombings and how they've moved forward since then. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson. For more of our coverage on the 10 years since the bombings, visit WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. And ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future. Supporting Youth Enrichment Services April 20th Black Diamond Gala and their mission to use outdoor experiences to prepare Boston youth to meet life's challenges. Yeskids.org gala and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. An Air National Guard member from Massachusetts faces arraignment in Boston today on charges of leaking Pentagon documents online. It's Friday, April 14th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the Pentagon says 21-year-old Jack Teixeira of Dighton was a member of the 102nd Intelligence Wing at Joint Base Cape Cod. Intelligence wings throughout the Air Force uh, support what you might imagine, Air Force intelligence requirements worldwide to support a variety of, of types of intelligence missions and requirements. Also, we talk with some abortion providers about how they're navigating the legal landscape over a popular abortion pill. And the new general manager of the T talks about his plan to restore riders' trust. Well, we're going to start from the bottom up. We're going to dive into everything that we're doing, start tackling the things that are impacting the riders and the level of service that they need. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The suspect in the leaking of sensitive Pentagon documents online will be arraigned today in Boston. Jack Teixeira will be charged under a provision of the Espionage Act. The Justice Department has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to stop any changes limiting access to an abortion medication while a federal lawsuit plays out. Meanwhile, NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports 
Doctors who provide abortions are trying to navigate legal uncertainty. There are currently competing court decisions in different parts of the country that concern access to mifepristone. That's one medication used to stop a pregnancy either for abortion or in treatment of a miscarriage. It's used in combination with another drug. Doctors who provide abortion, like Dr. Kristen Brandy, are calling each other, trying to figure out whether they can keep prescribing medicine that has been standard practice for decades. Offices are getting calls from patients asking if they can still get their medication abortion that they have scheduled. So it's just been mayhem. Any changes to access will only affect this one drug used for abortions and likely only in some places, but the legal situation for physicians is still very unclear. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. A wildfire continues to burn in northern New Jersey. It's about a third contained. The fire is about 700 acres, but it's threatening several homes. New Jersey Forest Fire Service Chief Greg McLaughlin says that's because the surrounding area is filled with flammable items. These are pieces of bark and uh, pine needles, if you will, leaves and other debris that catch fire and then travel sometimes long distances to start new spot fires. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, Governor Tony Evers has declared a state of emergency because of heightened wildfire conditions there. China says it won't sell weapons to the parties involved in the conflict in Ukraine. It's a response to concerns from the U.S. and others that China was considering providing military assistance to Russia. NPR's Awen Cao reports from Beijing. Speaking at a news conference with its visiting German counterpart in Beijing, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang reiterated China's willingness to help facilitate negotiations to find a peaceful resolution to the Ukraine conflict. He said that all parties should remain, quote, objective and calm. When speaking about the concerns over the tensions in the Taiwan Strait, Qin said that Taiwan was, quote, China's internal affair and bore no outside interference, and, quote, Taiwan independence and peace cannot coexist. Beijing recently held large-scale military drills around Taiwan in an attempt to intimidate the island it claims as its own territory after its president Tsai Ing-wen's U.S. visit. Ao Wen-chao, NPR News, Beijing. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. More now on the Massachusetts Air National Guard member charged with leaking Pentagon documents online. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira is scheduled to appear in federal court in Boston today. He was arrested at his family's home in Dighton yesterday. Teixeira reportedly was an IT specialist at Joint Base Cape Cod. He's accused of posting sensitive military information on a website primarily used by game the Boston Globe says Teixeira was a 2020 graduate of Dighton Rehoboth High School. His stepbrother and stepfather reportedly also worked at Joint Base Cape Cod. The state's labor secretary says one of her main goals is addressing the worker shortage in Massachusetts. WBUR's Yasmeen Ammer sat down and talked with Secretary Lauren Jones. Jones says it's a good time to think about worker training. The state has more federal money available. Asked where she thinks the biggest opportunities are, she pointed to green energy as a priority. One percent of Governor Healy's first budget proposal is dedicated to clean energy. 
That means thinking about the jobs um, that are in that um, industry, the jobs that are here today, the jobs that are going to be part of this industry in the future, and the pipeline that we need to invest in today to have a robust talent pool for the future. And so that's super exciting. According to the latest U.S. data, Massachusetts has around two jobs open for every unemployed worker in the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Boston Marathon organizers hope to make the thousands of runners, their families, and all the crowds on Monday part of their first responder team. WBUR's Martha Biebinger explains. The Boston Athletic Association has medical tents along the course, but there are gaps of a mile or more between them. If a runner falls and is unresponsive, the association wants everyone nearby to be ready to help after calling 911. Act fast. Do not presume that someone else will help. Dr. Megan Waspy guides hands-on CPR training in a video the association sent every participant ahead of the race. Kneel beside the runner and put the heel of one hand in the center of the chest. Place your other hand on top of the first, lacing your fingers together. Then push hard and fast in the center of the chest until help arrives. CPR training will also be available at the Marathon Expo through Sunday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. In sports, the Bruins ended their regular season with a win over the Canadiens. The final last night in Montreal was 5-4. to four. The Bees will take on the Florida Panthers when the playoffs begin on Monday. Red Sox will be home tonight to play the Los Angeles Angels. In our weather forecast, sunny and hot today. Temperatures in the 80s by midday, but they should drop down into the 60s by late this afternoon. Tonight, a few clouds, temperatures around 50 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, temperatures in the 50s. For Sunday, a chance of showers, highs in the 50s. And Marathon Monday, rain in the afternoon with temperatures near 60 degrees. It is 74 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE, price and coverage match limited by state law. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. The Justice Department says it will take its fight to protect access to abortion pills all the way to the Supreme Court. The newest request that the widely used abortion pill, Mifepristone, remain available while a lawsuit makes its way through the courts. So what does this fast-moving case mean for doctors who provide abortions? Generally, it's just been chaos, frankly. Dr. Kristen Brandy is an OBGYN in New Jersey. She says the legal battles are complicating the kind of medical care she can provide. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here with us once again to tell us more. Good morning, Selena. Good morning, Michelle. So reminder, just a quick reminder for those who may not have been following this. There are two competing decisions in different parts of the country right now that concern this abortion pill, Mifepristone. Yeah, exactly. So this is one medication that's used to stop a pregnancy either for abortion or treatment of miscarriage. It's used in combination with another drug. And Mifepristone has become the center of cases going through the federal courts right now. It's quite likely that the Supreme Court will weigh in soon. And in the meantime, doctors who provide abortion still have patients to see. They told me they're confused, they're angry, they're frustrated. Here's more of what Dr. Kristen Brandy said. Every couple of minutes, I'm getting a call from a 
friend of mine from across the country that's an abortion provider trying to figure out if they can provide care. Offices are getting calls from patients asking if they can still get their medication abortion that they have scheduled. So it's just been mayhem. But I understand that access to mifepristone may change in some places in some ways as soon as tomorrow. So how are doctors figuring out what they're supposed to do or what they're allowed to do? Yeah, I mean, a lot of lawyers are trying to make educated guesses here about how to advise clinics, um, but it kind of comes down to how much risk you as a doctor are willing to take. Are you comfortable still giving out pills you have in stock? Are you comfortable prescribing a medication based on your understanding of the evidence of the safety and efficacy? My colleague Sarah McCammon spoke to Dr. Colleen McNicholas at Planned Parenthood in Illinois, who said because of the support of officials in her state, they're going to keep providing mifepristone. And so for us, nothing changes tomorrow. We are going to continue to provide medication abortion in the way that we were a week ago. Certainly other providers in less friendly states are making a different calculus. They're going to stop giving out mifepristone based on their reading of how the latest court rulings apply to them. Now, this seems to be a lot to keep track of for patients and for doctors. And I'm thinking particularly for patients who are already in an emotional and stressful situation. Absolutely. But, you know, the OBGYNs I talked with yesterday made the point that abortion providers are used to navigating restrictions. Here's Dr. Jamila Parrott, an OBGYN here in Washington, D.C. Every morning we wake up and there's a new assault, new rules, new mandates, new restrictions, new demands, all though aligned with the same intention to eliminate abortion access. Now, one thing to note is abortion procedures aren't affected by any of these cases. They are still available in states where abortion is legal. And even medication abortion is available, too, just possibly not with this drug at the center of this legal fight. And finally, last night, the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, signed a law that bans most abortions in Florida. Tell us more about this law. Well, it's a six-week ban, but it doesn't go into effect right away. It's set to go into effect 30 days after the state Supreme Court decides a case challenging its current abortion law. It would have huge implications if it did take effect for abortion access in the South, but for now, nothing changes. That is NPR's Selena Simmons-Duff. And Selena, thank you so much. Thank you. The National Rifle Association holds its annual meeting beginning today in Indianapolis. The convention takes place on the 104th day of this year. You know how many mass shootings there have been in that time? At least 151, more than the days that we've lived this year. I'll list a few recent ones. There was a shooting you may not have heard of at a funeral here in D.C. three days ago. There was the high-profile mass shooting at a bank in Louisville four days ago. And the killing of children and adults at an elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee, 18 days ago. So how will this impact or not impact this convention. To discuss, we're joined by Ben Thorpe of member station WFYI in Indianapolis, and he'll be covering the convention. Hi, Ben. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So what kind of reception is the NRA convention getting this year? You know, there have been a mix of reactions to the NRA convention, as I think you'd expect. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, the event is expected to bring some 70,000 people to Indianapolis with estimates of up to $30 million in economic benefit to the region. Republicans at the State House also passed a resolution honoring the NRA earlier this week. But Indianapolis is also just two years out from a mass shooting at a FedEx distribution center that killed eight people in 2021. And some, you know, particularly state Democrats, have criticized the heavy involvement of Republican leadership at this event. So that's to be expected pushback from Democrats in the legislature. But we're hearing about some protests that are planned, right? 
Yeah, uh, you know, there are a couple of planned demonstrations throughout this weekend with police kind of designating a space for peaceful protests across from the convention center. Uh, One protest expected Saturday will read the names of every child killed by gun violence in 2022. And then on Sunday, the Indiana chapter of Moms Demand Action is planning an event where they'll have the shoes representing all of the people killed by gun violence in Indianapolis. I do kind of want to add that these protests so far seem like they could be small. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been a lot of kind of local chatter here. So we know the NRA has faced high-profile lawsuits, financial issues in recent years, but the convention is definitely attracting big names in Republican politics. Tell us more about who's expected to make an appearance. That's right. I mean, there's a long list of people who will be speaking today. Some of them have officially announced runs, and some of them are still exploring runs. Those names, of course, include former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. uh, And we're also going to hear from uh, former South Carolina uh, Governor Nikki Haley, who is a 2024 presidential candidate. Um, The Second Amendment, I think, has always been a major issue for the GOP, with many touting their approval ratings with the NRA. Some candidates, like Indiana's former Governor Mike Pence, have even walked back support of red flag laws as they've neared this potential run for president. Now, Ben, Indiana is now one of the 26 or so states that do not require people 18 and over to have a permit to carry a firearm. Are there any concerns about that becoming a talking point this weekend? It's it's hard to say. You know, in the lead up to the passage of Indiana's so-called constitutional carry The move was met with opposition by a number of state law enforcement groups who worried it was going to infringe on their ability to do their jobs and identify people who shouldn't be armed. Ahead of this weekend's convention, you know, speaking with Indianapolis Metropolitan Police, they said that there will likely be more guns downtown, uh, but they are also not that worried and say that they are used to hosting large crowd events like this. Hmm. Uh, I do think it's also worth mentioning that guns are banned in the room where speakers like Donald Trump are going to be, but are otherwise allowed at this convention. WFYI's Ben Thorpe in Indianapolis. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much. North Korea says it tested a new solid-fuel intercontinental ballistic missile. That means new rockets that can be launched far more quickly than the ones in its current arsenal. Experts are saying it represents another important step toward Pyongyang completing its nuclear arsenal. NPR's Anthony Kuhn joins us from Seoul to explain the significance of this move. Hello, Anthony. Hey, Michelle. So what did North Korea say about this new weapon and the test launch? North Korea said that this is a new intercontinental ballistic missile called the Hwasong-18, which it says improves its ability to launch a quick nuclear counterattack. And they said they want to make their enemies suffer from fear and anxiety. Uh, Leader Kim Jong-un was there to watch this test launch along with his wife, his sister, and his young daughter. And any time there's a really important event like this, it's a family affair, and that's how they highlighted it. Tell us more about why this solid-fuel rocket is such an improvement for North Korea's capabilities. Well, when you have a liquid-fueled missile, it has to be fueled up while the missile is sitting on a launch pad, and that makes it a target. With a solid-fuel missile, they have it pre-fueled, ready to go. They have it hidden in a tunnel often. 
They just roll it out on a truck, point it up, and they launch it in a matter of minutes. So what this means in practical terms was spelled out for us by Jeffrey Lewis, who's an arms control expert at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California. Let's hear him. It's just going to be much, much harder for the United States to ultimately find and destroy these missiles in a conflict. And uh, as we've said previously, Kim Jong-un has already publicly listed the weapons he wants to develop in the next few years, and he's gone down the list and done it. Hypersonic missiles, submarine-launched missiles, cruise missiles, train-launched missiles, all just to make it easier for North Korea to hit its enemies and harder for its enemies to hit it. Do we know what the U.S. and South Korea plan to do in response? Well, just very recently, the U.S. and South Korea announced that they staged joint Air Force drills involving at least one U.S. B-52 strategic bomber. I think it's safe to say that they're going to continue to focus on deterring North Korea. They've been holding the most and the biggest military drills in five years this year. Uh, the U.S. is under pressure to demonstrate its commitment to defending its ally South Korea, and the South is trying to reassure its public that they still have the military technology edge over North Korea and that the U.S. is giving them a greater say in how they deter North Korea. The U.S., meanwhile, continues to insist that the door to negotiations with North Korea remains open, but diplomacy has now been stalled for four years with no signs of any progress. Is North Korea going to want to put a nuclear warhead on this new missile? Well, some analysts believe that the Hwasong-18 still needs to be tested, but essentially they have a new generation of missiles out now, and they're going to focus on new warheads to put on them. And that's why people have been expecting a seventh underground nuclear test for about a year or so. It hasn't happened, possibly because it would trigger a stronger response from the international community, but they need to test more nuclear bombs to finish the arsenal. So I think we can expect them to do that at a time of their choosing. That is NPR's Anthony Kuhn joining us from Seoul. Anthony, thank you so much. Thanks, Michelle. Dominion Voting Systems wants Fox News to pay it $1.6 billion in damages, damages it says were caused by lies. The defamation case starts next week. What should we expect? Find out later today by listening to All Things Considered. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, we talk with the new general manager of the T about his plan to restore commuters' trust. And in about 20 minutes, a new report says even in traditional marriages where women earn as much or more than their husbands, they still take on a greater share of housework, housework and caregiving. The time is 20 minutes past 8. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill, Chauncey Hall School, and Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill, Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. CHCH.org slash open house. In the final episode of On Point's special series, The Power of Populism. Populism is what we desperately need, what we have to have, and what we can't have. Populism can have an authoritarian trajectory, but we'll look at whether it can also bring about better democracies. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us for that On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
In our weather forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the 80s in the middle of the day, but they should drop down into the 60s by the end of the day. Tonight, a few clouds with lows around 50. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, temperatures in the upper 50s. And for Sunday, a chance of showers with highs in the 50s. It is 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. MBTA General Manager Philip Eng completes his first week on the job, and it's been called the most difficult job in Massachusetts. The T's experienced a wave of service disruptions, slowdowns, and is in the midst of a labor shortage. And Philip Eng joins us to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning, Deborah. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being with us. After week one, do you think you're in the most difficult job in Massachusetts? Well, I will say this. We are in a vital job. We are providing vital service, essential service for uh, the people that need to get around um, the greater Boston area in Massachusetts. Um, So it's an exciting time, um, and and I really thoroughly and enjoy the opportunity to provide that level of service for people. Mm. But, you know, there have been some problems. In, in your first few days, there were some derailments on the red and blue lines. No, nobody was hurt. But, you know, uh, these incidents are in the headlines frequently, and it's almost a pastime to complain about the tea here in Massachusetts. How, how do you rebuild trust among passengers? Well, we're going to start from the bottom up. We're going to dive into everything that we're doing, um, start tackling the things that are uh, impacting the riders and the level of service that they need and increasing speeds, um, ensuring safety. Um, and then the riders will start to see those benefits. And at the same time, we're going to work on communications, giving them the information they need so they can make decisions on their daily travels. Mm. You know, when do you think we might see sort of, or, or riders might see some of the the tangible effects of some of your proposals? When when might we see actual faster trains or more information about our, our own specific routes or things like that? How soon? Well, even before I started, I asked the folks to give me information with regards to the different speed restriction zones. Uh, and that information is what actual repairs we need to complete. And then let's put a plan together and a schedule together. Once we have that, we will start sharing that with the public and then we'll hold ourselves to those schedules. So I don't have the exact dates, but the intent is to tackle the areas that are most problematic with the slowest speeds that impact the most people first, and then ultimately from end to end. You know, there there was a report uh, issued this month that, that said the T will be on track to start the next fiscal year 
with really low staffing levels, about 25 percent below what's required to maintain the system, right? And uh, the team needs, what, about 2,800 workers in the next 12 months? What are you going to do to try to fill some of those jobs? Because you may be able to identify where there are problems, but you're going to need the workers to make sure that, that the trains run on time. You know, we do need uh, to hire a significant number of people, and this is not um, uncommon to many public agencies and in, in private sector as well. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to take the hiring efforts and we're going to get out and about to the different communities. We're going to be talking to them about not only about the incentive that we're offering, the hiring bonus of $7,500, but their career paths that they can have beyond the entry level. It, it really is, um, once the premier job, I'm told, and we're going to make it the premier job again. Um, it won't be easy, um, but people will realize that their opportunities are great, and we're going to we're going to really focus on getting to them before they've made decisions on their careers. All right, MBTA General Manager Philip Ang, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. You have a great day. It's Friday, and that means it's time for StoryCorps. Growing up, Fulashade Alao wanted more than anything to make her mom proud. Now 43 years old, she came to StoryCorps with her mom to talk about their relationship and the Bill of Rights she drafted as a kid. I grew up in a rural community where we had to walk maybe a mile to school. I was the eighth child. I just had to defend me. It developed a toughness in me that I have always had. I was just awestruck how assertive you were, you being this really bold, bold woman. Looking backward, do you feel like you missed a lot? I think maybe the thing I missed was like messing up more (laughs) because I did not want to disappoint you and I could see how hard you were working. Although I do remember one moment where I was rebellious. Yes. Was I in the third grade? I drafted out my amendments about what I thought was fair and not fair. Everyone else was getting allowance, and I was like, I want allowance. I did give you some allowance at one point. You did, but it was not for washing dishes. I think you gave me things for excelling in school. What came out of it was you telling me that you're not my friend, you're my mama, and that we each have an important role in supporting our household. I was more charitable than what I thought. One of the things I remember you saying was, I have to be in charge of my education and I need to speak up. I wanted to give you every opportunity as I could as a single person, buying books and putting you in programs. I feel like you poured into me so much. You have been everything that a parent could ask for. You're compassionate and you're wise beyond your years. We don't have playbooks by what we do as parents. It's up to you to guide this miracle that you've been entrusted with. Mommy, I love you to the moon and back. And I love you too, to the moon and all the galaxies beyond. That was Fulashade Alao and Margaret Powell for StoryCorps in Decatur, Georgia. Their conversation will be archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. 
Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, after a Massachusetts Air National Guard member is arrested on charges of leaking Pentagon documents, we'll talk with a former federal security official about what U.S. intelligence agencies can do to prevent future data leaks. And in about 20 minutes from now, remembering the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years later. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo, what makes you happy? Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham, zoonewengland.org. And BMW, the BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. An IT specialist in the Massachusetts Air National Guard is expected in court today in Boston to face charges of espionage. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira is suspected of leaking dozens of classified Pentagon documents online. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin has more. As an IT professional, you typically have access to a lot of records because you need to fix systems when they break. That was actually the case for Edward Snowden, too, who leaked a trove of NSA documents in 2014. He was a systems administrator, though these leakers don't actually seem very similar. This has caused a real problem, and the Pentagon is definitely looking at reevaluating who gets access to these kind of files. The city of Minneapolis has agreed to pay nearly $9 million to settle a pair of lawsuits alleging excessive force by former police officer Derek Chauvin. The lawsuits accuse Chauvin of kneeling on the necks of two people several years before he was convicted of killing George Floyd during an arrest. Matt Sepik with Minnesota Public Radio reports. Newly released video shows Derek Chauvin using his knee to pin down John Pope and Zoya Code during two unrelated incidents in 2017. Pope was 14 years old at the time, Code was 34, and had recently given birth. Neither suffered serious injuries. In 2021, a jury convicted Chauvin of murder for using a similar restraint on George Floyd. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA says miscommunication is to blame for four close calls where employees were almost hit by trains. All of those incidents happened within the past month. T officials say the incidents were because of miscommunication between dispatchers and construction crews. New MBTA General Manager Philip Bang says he's working on creating a culture of safety to prevent incidents like this. What we need to do is make sure that we ingrain that thought into each one of our employees, not only for their own safety, for their colleagues. Don't enter the service area until you have proper approvals. Before anyone enters, they need to go through a whole safety check. It's going to be a constant refreshing of those key points. Ang says those changes will make the T safer not only for employees, but for riders as well. Local authorities are reminding anyone going to the marathon on Monday that security is going to be tight. Don Brantley is acting director of the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. As in past marathons, there will be areas along the course with enhanced security procedures, including checkpoints and bag checks. 
We ask for the public's understanding and cooperation with those procedures. Spectators won't be allowed to carry glass bottles, coolers, or blankets past those checkpoints. The T's reminding riders that the Copley Square station will be closed all day Monday, but subway lines, buses, and commuter rail lines will operate on a weekday schedule. The members of Massachusetts' all-Democratic congressional delegation are working to try to prevent the closure of Boston's shipyard. The lawmakers have sent a letter urging the U.S. Navy secretary to prioritize bids for union shipyards. That includes the Boston Ship Repair Dry Dock in South Boston. The lawmakers say the shipyards are losing work to rival yards that are not unionized and pay substantially lower wages. The time is 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. In sports, the Bruins' history-making regular season ended last night with a 5-4 win over the Canadiens. The Bees set the NHL record for most wins and most points in a season. They'll take on the Florida Panthers in the first round of the playoffs, and that begins Monday. Red Sox are back at Fenway tonight to begin a four-game series with the L.A. Angels. In our forecast, sunny and very warm today. Temperatures in the 80s by midday, but then they'll start to drop down into the 60s before the day ends. Tonight, increasing clouds, lows near 50 degrees, cloudy tomorrow, highs in the upper 50s. For Sunday, chance of showers, temperatures in the 50s, and Marathon Monday, looks like it's going to be rainy. Highs near 60 degrees. It is 74 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Falden. Federal investigators have arrested a man they believe is behind this recent leak of intelligence documents. Jack Teixeira is due in court today. He's a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. The leaked information included sensitive Ukraine war assessments and exposed the U.S. spying on its allies. This may be one of the largest intelligence breaches in the last decade. Joining me now is Glenn Gerstel, former general counsel of the National Security Agency. Good morning. Good morning. So I think the big question for so many people right now is how, if in fact the leaker of this huge trove of documents is a 21-year-old with such a short time in the military, a person posting racist and anti-Semitic things with his friends in a gaming group, how did he have access to such sensitive and secretive documents? That, of course, is the big question, and obviously there's going to be an inquiry both uh, within the intelligence community and more specifically within the military to find those answers to that very question. Mm -hmm. But um, just to start with the basics, he, this, uh, by, according to press reports, uh, this man was um, uh, working as an Air National uh, Guardsman um, and presumably had a top secret security clearance, which 
uh, wouldn't be anything unusual for someone low-level and young because mm. sometimes some of the uh, newer entry people, especially in the IT area, which is where he worked, um, would have had to have access to classified information to do their work because they were keeping the network secure, for example, and that would require a top-secret clearance. So what uh, safeguards, but, but, if, if I could just ask, what safeguards sure. are supposed to be in place to prevent people with this kind of access? Because it sounds like a lot of people have this kind of access from leaking intelligence. Sure. So, so as I said, it's not unusual that he had the, had the access. The problem is uh, how was he allowed to get to these materials? And mm -hmm. that's where there obviously is a system failure. Um, he shouldn't be able to have access to anything more than he needs to do for his job. There's a so-called so need-to-know principle, and that seems to have been ignored, at least in practice in this area. He was able to access things from the CIA, from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, reports having nothing really to do with his job or the Massachusetts Air National Guard, and he was able evidently to take pieces of paper, uh, print this out on pieces of paper and take them home, and again, that's a huge security failure that we're going to have to investigate. Now, in light of this leak, the Pentagon wants to limit the number of employees who are granted top secret clearance. What would that look like? So after every one of these leaks, the Snowden leak, the Chelsea Manning leak, whatever, there's a quite understandable reaction to clamp down and make sure that access is limited so this kind of thing doesn't happen again. Um, that's offset by a very strong desire, especially after 9-11, uh, when the intelligence and defense communities were faulted for not sharing information widely enough. There's another trend that pushes in the opposite direction that says more people within the defense and intelligence community need information. They need to so-called connect the dots. And so there's this tension between security on one hand and at the same time making sure we have available information to people who need it to make the decisions. And mm -hmm. that's, that's something that the pendulum just swings back and forth on. We don't seem to get that balance right. Now, you mentioned Snowden and Chelsea Manning, which seem like very different leaks uh, and ultimately led to some public accountability, especially in the Snowden case, an NSA surveillance program of Americans that was ultimately deemed illegal and possibly unconstitutional. I mean, uh, free speech advocates see some of these leaks as a path to public accountability that otherwise Americans wouldn't get. I don't think that's true at all. And mm. in this particular case, um, uh, this is a very not different a case, politically, as we mentioned. really not politically motivated. Uh, th this is just someone who, for whatever reasons, was getting excited and enjoyed uh, uh, almost almost as if getting a thrill out of shoplifting, so to speak, not to trivialize this, but was taking some of the nation's secrets and posting them on a Discord uh, chat group with some of his friends just to make himself look, look big. Do you think allies that are looking at the U.S. right now in these documents are wondering if the intelligence community can keep its secrets? I think there's surely another question going on on the part of allies uh, who share information with us, but I think ultimately they understand these. this is a, a, a one-time, although serious, uh, accident, and I don't think it's going to really affect um, any, any long-term relationship with allies. There'll be some questioning, but I think uh, long-term things are going to continue as they are with, with the United States making a stronger effort to, to wrap this up. Glenn Gerstel is former general counsel of the National Security Agency. Thank you for your time and your insights. Thank you. A new report tells us women are making bank at work and carrying a big load at home, too. What a shock to hear this. The Pew Research Center combed several national surveys to come to this finding. NPR's Andrea Shu gives us more details. Here's the gist. In marriages between men and women, 
A growing share of women are earning as much or more than their husbands. And yet, even in those marriages, women are still spending more time on housework and caregiving than the men. Kim Parker is director of social trends research at the Pew Research Center. In many ways, I think public attitudes are kind of lagging behind the economic realities that husbands and wives are facing these days. Pew found that in 45 percent of U.S. marriages now, women make roughly as much or more than their husbands. That's triple what it was half a century ago, when far fewer women were in the workforce. They're very much almost on equal footing with men in the workplace, yet there are still these attitudes about what's really valued in terms of the contributions that they make. Pew surveyed more than 5,000 people about those attitudes. They asked them, what does society value more in men and women, their contributions at work or at home? What we found was that a majority of Americans say that society values men's contributions at work more than what they do at home. But for women, it was totally different. Only one in five respondents says society puts greater value on what women do at work. Close to a third said society favors what women do at home. And here's the curious thing. Young people, those under 30, were the most likely to take that view. They're almost more cynical about it, which is interesting. On the other hand, Parker says older people tend to think society puts equal weight on what women do at work and at home. She says maybe that's because older people have witnessed a lot of change over their lifetime. Whereas for young people, they might just see the imbalance now, but they haven't lived through the arc of the advancements women have made in the workplace. Daisy Chin-Law has lived that arc. She worked in corporate leadership roles for years while raising a family. She's now interim head of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. I think that in the past, there was an assumption that there are certain roles that you play, and that's what women do. Men think we like to do it. I think we have to do it. There is some innate nature to it. But I think there's a lot more discussion about it. And that she sees as progress. Andrea Shu, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, we continue our remembrances of the Boston Marathon bombings 10 years ago. And at 9 this morning, it's the BBC News Hour. On the BBC Today, they'll have some international perspective on the arrest of a Massachusetts Air National Guard member from Dighton who's suspected of leaking classified documents. In our weather forecast, sunny, very warm today. It could be another record-breaking day for the heat. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes says Boston set a record of 88 degrees yesterday. Our typical first 80-degree reading comes the first week of May, so we're a bit ahead of schedule. We'll still reach the 80s inland today, and the city is going to come very close to reaching the record to beat, which is 81 for today. It's going to totally depend on when a backdoor front comes in. That's basically going to shift the wind to blow in off the ocean and cool our temperatures rapidly through the 70s and 60s this afternoon into the 50s by evening. Tomorrow, it should be mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 50s, and Sunday, a chance of showers with temperatures in the 50s. It is 73 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with Simone Lee. 
a history-making exhibition makes its U.S. debut now on view, ICABoston.org. Between the Boston Marathon next week and April School Vacation Week, it's going to be busy at Logan Airport throughout the week next week. WBUR's Andrea Perdoma-Hernandez shares some things that flyers might want to keep in mind. Massport CEO Lisa Wheeland expects to see more passengers flying in and out of Logan starting this weekend. We estimate that people should plan maybe an extra hour as a part of their travel time, given how busy we expect the airport to be. Wheeland says Logan's parking garages are likely to reach capacity. She encourages travelers to use public transit or the Logan Express service. We'll have people coming in for the marathon, right, and then families, people who are leaving because it's school vacation week. Whelan says Logan is still not as busy as it was before the start of the pandemic, but it's getting closer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer, a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, now through April 16th, bostonballet.org and the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at nutter.com. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Among the official victims of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings is a Boston police officer who died a year after the attacks. Boston Police Sergeant Dennis D.J. Simmons was among those who responded a few days after the marathon to the standoff and shootout with the bombers in Watertown. A state medical panel concluded that his death a year later was likely caused by job-related injuries. We spoke with Officer Simmons' sister, Nicole Simmons-Jordan, and asked how she remembers her brother. D.J. was one that stood on grounds of discipline, leadership, and respect. And he was a very, very proud, accomplished, five-year veteran of the Boston Police Department with so much hope, so much determination, and a lane easily paved for a destination of winning. When you think back to 2013 bombings and then you know then the shootout what stands out in your mind and what do you remember about what DJ told you regarding what was going on especially as a Boston police officer at the time the day April 15th 2013 uh, my grandparents happened to be driving from our hometown of Randolph Massachusetts to look with a realtor at a new home for DJ. And before they got to the home, they got a call from my brother. And it was a very rushed, emotionally jarring and confusing conversation. He directed my grandparents, do not come anywhere closer to Boston. Go back to Randolph. We are under attack. I am okay. I am working. I'm trying to get people to safety. We didn't speak to DJ much during those days because, I mean, he was on a manhunt. The whole city of Boston was, even if you weren't in the police. You know what I mean? The whole whole country was. And it was the middle of the night of the shootout. There were callers in Watertown in the vicinity of the shootout that were phoning in to different news stations with their own audio or video coverage of the shootout in the street. My mother was able to identify my brother's voice. My mother was just convinced. She said, I heard him, I know my son. 
and DJ was taken out via ambulance the night of Watertown after the shootout. And once DJ got in touch with us as the family, you know, he didn't make a big deal out of it. They were still getting their bearings. I mean, the city of Boston was actively in shock. So how do you think his injuries that night of the shootout affected him that year until? It was watching, it was like a slow depiction of the last moments of my brother's life. He did have to take some medical time off of work, and he came down and visited myself and my parents in Florida. And he stood in my mother's bedroom doorway in the middle of the night, and he said, Mom, ever since that night, I haven't had an ounce of what one would consider real sleep. And he tried to push for clarity on how he would regain his diehard commitment to service. His time just didn't click as long as we would have ever expected. What will you be doing on Monday, the the day of the marathon? We have a team of seven people running the marathon in support of the Dennis D.J. Simmons Unsung Hero Foundation. We round up folks that are willing to sacrifice and give the guts and the glory of killing that heartbreak hill. I say, look, don't worry about it. The run will be a little easier. DJ's got wings on your shoes. Nicole Simmons-Jordan is the sister of Boston Police Sergeant DJ Simmons, who died a year after the Boston Marathon bombings. Nicole, thanks so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you, Deb. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, the personal finance advice from artificial intelligence. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future. Supporting Youth Enrichment Services, April 20th, Black Diamond Gala, and their mission to use outdoor experiences to prepare Boston youth to meet life's challenges. Yeskids.org gala and ThoughtForms-Corp.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, marking 10 years. There's been two large explosions at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. You can hear the ambulances, you can hear the helicopter. People are responding with everything they can, but it's just not clear if it's going to be enough right now. We reflect on service and hope. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following on WBUR this Friday morning. An Air National Guard member from Dighton is scheduled to appear in Boston federal court today for arraignment on charges that he leaked classified Pentagon documents. Heightened security is in place in Paris as the country braces for a ruling on a plan to raise France's retirement age. And former President Donald Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence plan to speak at the annual National Rifle Association Convention, which begins in Indiana today. The BBC will have the top global headlines in about 10 minutes and stay in touch with the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
In our forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the 80s by midday, but dropping down into the 60s by the end of the day today. Right now it is 73 degrees in Boston. How are the banks doing given the wild ride last month when two medium-sized ones went bust? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing continuity for clients. More at BairdDifference.com. And by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant automatically takes live meeting notes, captures slides, generates summaries, and assigns action items. More at Otter.ai. I'm David Brancaccio. Big banks today are reporting profits that would be the envy of most other companies. In the first three months of the year, profits soared at J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup. Higher interest rates passed on to customers sure helped. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yes, they sure did, David. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase reported a 52% increase in profit to nearly $13 billion. That's compared to last year's first quarter. Wells Fargo's profit was up 32% up 7% at Citigroup. We also heard from PNC Financial among the top 10 biggest banks. Its first quarter profit was up almost 20%. JP Morgan said it saw a meaningful increase in account openings over the last month. That confirms what we've been hearing after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, that some depositors moved money out of small and medium-sized banks and into the nation's biggest banks, which are perceived to be safer. No, but what about the next few months? What are the projections from these banks in terms of where we're headed? Well, yeah, that's where it gets a little more uh, convoluted. J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup are all setting aside more rainy day funds in case of loan defaults. J.P. Morgan, the nation's biggest bank, set aside the most, $2.3 billion. It also said that credit card Credit card delinquencies are up. It characterized that as a return to normal, though, after a period in which consumers were really flush with cash. But the increase in rainy day funds does follow a darkening outlook, David, for the economy. Federal Reserve economists now think with the banking sector problems last month, a mild recession is likely to start later this year. All right. Thank you. J.P. Morgan stock is up 6% in pre-market trading now. City up 2%. Wells Fargo up 4%. After the Nasdaq index rose 2% yesterday, given news that prices are not rising as fast as before, this morning Nasdaq futures are the other way, down six-tenths of a percent. Dow futures are up 30 points, or about a tenth of a percent. The Kelly Blue Book people have new data on car sales, and it looks like buyers now have gotten back some of their negotiating power with less of that take-it-or-leave-it when buyers try to negotiate. Here's Marketplace's Savannah Marr. For the first time in nearly two years, the average new car buyer is paying less than the manufacturer set sticker price by about $171. It's a reflection of inventory shortages, which have really eased over the last six to nine months. Garrett Nelson, an auto analyst with CFRA, says some automakers have finally been able to get their hands on more semiconductor chips and make more vehicles. New car prices are still much higher than pre-pandemic, at an average of just over $48,000. But Jessica Caldwell with the car site Edmonds says the buyer experience is shifting. Consumers will be able to do a little bit more shopping and not necessarily just be dictated that this is the vehicle, this is the color, kind of a take it or leave it situation. After two years of surging demand, Caldwell says dealerships are now hoping modest discounts will incentivize car sales. But with high prices and interest rates, she says some consumers will continue to wait it out. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace.
And we're getting the numbers on the toll of an explosion at a dairy farm in Texas this week. The sheriff's department there estimates 18,000 cattle were killed in the town of Dimmit between Amarillo and Lubbock. Investigators suspect a methane leak. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by SoFi. With a SoFi high-yield savings account, members can earn more money on their money. Plus, deposits are FDIC insured. Learn more at SoFi.com, SOFI.com. Get your money right. SoFi Bank N.A. Member FDIC. And by Vantage Score. Vantage Score's credit scoring models help expand financial inclusion by leveraging predictive analytics at VantageScore.com. Artificial intelligence can paint nightmarish pictures. It can compose music that's eh. But what about giving advice on personal finances, savings, and investing? How good is the advice you get back? Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes looked into this. First, meet the AIs we're talking to today. I am Bard. Created by Google. And I am ChatGPT. Created by OpenAI. And they will both tell you. I am not a financial advisor. And I am not licensed to provide financial advice. That said, it can be tempting to ask them questions about money. Now, meet our human. I am Kaya Ladajobi. I am a certified financial planner. Ladajobi's in Atlanta and has her own practice advising individuals and small business owners. One question she's often asked, should they pay off debt first before investing? We put that query to both ChatGPT and Bard, who had very similar answers. In general, it's a good idea to pay off high-interest debt before investing. Whether you should pay off debt debt before investing depends on a number of factors, including... They went on longer, and Lada Joby said the answers were pretty good. Maybe 85% of the way there. If, you know, this question were posed to me as an advisor, there are other things I would add. Like by paying off debt, are they leaving free money on the table through something like an employer match to a retirement account? And do they have enough money for an emergency fund? At least those two areas I would bring up as a human advisor, not AI, you know? Trouble is, sometimes these chatbots sound like humans, too. They're very, very good at language. Michael Littman is a computer science professor at Brown. But they're actually not that good at other things. And he warns AIs are... Perfectly comfortable giving inappropriate responses. And so they could potentially give you advice that if you were to follow it, would guarantee that you're going to go bankrupt. Both Google and OpenAI say their chatbots should not be relied on for financial advice. And professional financial advisor Kyle Adajobi said she's not worried about losing work to them anytime soon because she's able to advise clients individually in a way a chatbot can't. They call it personal finance because it's personal. That said, Lada Joby's thinking about how to use AI in her work. On our Zoom call, she actually had an AI join to record and take notes. She said it's a tool that can make her faster at her job, so she has more time to do the work that, so far, only humans can do. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. And for a primer on economics and the way policymakers think about these numbers, consider signing up for our Marketplace Crash Course, Econ 101. It's free, and you can learn along with me at your own pace. Start anytime. Marketplace.org slash crash course gets you to that. I'm David Brancaccio with our Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, sunny today. Temperatures getting into the 80s, but dropping this afternoon down into the 60s. Some clouds tonight, lows in the 50s. It is 73 degrees right now in Boston at 9 o'clock. Stay with us. The BBC is next.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries, welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, westonnurseries.com. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.